Hello and welcome to My Biggest Lesson, the show that brings you the key learnings from the most influential founders, executives, and investors in the Colorado tech community. My name is Adam Burrows. And I'm Chris Erickson. Together, we are the co-founders of Range Ventures. An early stage venture firm based in Denver. You can find out more about what we're up to at range.vc. Our guest this week is Bijal Shah. Bijal is the Chief Experience Officer and Head of Platform at Guild Education, where she is responsible for driving and delivering a world-class member experience with the aim of enabling millions of Americans to unlock economic opportunity. Bijal has the distinction of being one of the few people to be on the executive team of two Colorado unicorns, both at Guild and prior to that at Ibotta. Bijal, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We'd love to start out, maybe uh, tell our listeners what you're up to now with Guild and a little bit more about your background in the Colorado Tech ecosystem. Yeah, happy to talk to you about that. So I currently am the Chief Experience Officer at Guild Education, and I lead a variety of teams at Guild that focus on helping ensure that we create a world-class member experience. Prior to Guild, I worked at Ibotta, which is also a Denver-based unicorn, and I led their data and analytics team, everything from the business analytics team all the way through the machine learning engineering team. And Bija, what's it been like? I mean, you've got two uh, two of the, the, the fastest growing, most scaled Colorado tech companies. What, what's been the common experience there or, or the big differences? I'll start with the common and then I think the differences are they're different. And so I'll go into that in a little more detail. The common, I would say, uh, aspects of both are honestly visionary leaders um, who want to push the boundaries and envelope on what has to be true now and are willing and have a desire to test the status quo and to break the status quo. And they have a relentless desire to figure out how to do that um, and are willing to try a number of different ways to get there and really come with grit and persistence. Uh, there are a lot of ups and downs along the way and the ability to persist and hang on and really believe in yourself and the idea I think is um, something that is common across both of those. What is different, I think, is just how the companies operate, uh, what their core kind of values are, and and just what the rhythm of the business looks like. Um, you know, I my husband and I joke all the time that you read a lot of business management books around how to think about scaling a startup or crossing the chasm or any of those things. And then when you get inside of a company, every company needs something really different. And the ability to be adaptable and flexible along the way, I think is critical. And I would say Ibotta and Guild couldn't be two more different companies from that perspective. I think that's, that's such an interesting um, learning, you know, in my experience to be Joe with, with both Home Advisor, Angie and, and Guild. Both successful companies could not be more different as well. And it's one of those things that Chris and I talk about a lot is that there's no one archetype or formula for building a really successful company, despite what you read in some of the business management textbooks. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think it's been fun to also just as a leader be able to have to flex different muscles and flex in different ways to try and help the organization be successful. So, Bijal, you've been here in Denver for about 10 years at this point. 
and as Adam mentioned, you know, I, Ibotta and now Guild, would love to hear your perspective on how the tech ecosystem has changed from when you showed up almost 10 years ago to where it is today. Oh, wow. That's a really great question. I would say it's matured a lot. When I got here, I remember the first week on the job at Ibotta, there was a um, Denver startup week, kind of like pub crawl. I can't even remember what it was called. And all of these people rushing in and out of Ibotta's office and me standing there being like, what is this? And it was like a really great representation of where Denver Startup Week was at the time and kind of how homegrown things were. And now I think about Denver Startup Week, the types of contributors that come, the number of individuals who come. And I do think it's like a nice representation of how far along the tech ecosystem and kind of the startup and entrepreneurial ecosystem have come in Denver and how many different companies there are now, as well as we used to always not complain or joke there wasn't there wasn't a lot of homegrown funds um, or money in Denver. Uh, and you had to go to the coast outside of Foundry, you had to go to the coast to kind of raise money. And now there are a lot of funds, including range um, in town. And that's also really exciting because Having capital close by just means you have the opportunity to invest in this ecosystem um, even more. Curious, on top of that, you know, you've been hiring throughout that time too, right? As a, in a managerial role, have you seen any anecdotal difference in the type of talent that's showing up to, to interview at, at these companies? Honestly, it's a little bit hard to say because I would say that growth has happened as well as COVID happened. <laughs> um, and COVID just blew the doors off the rules, I think, in terms of where you could hire, who you could hire, how you could hire. And given that, I, we have seen a lot of really amazing talent from around the country and a diversity of talent from around the country be interested in Guild. But it's really hard to figure out whether that's because Denver's on the map or whether COVID just made it easier and more accessible for individuals to find companies like Guild. Um, what's a company aside from Guild and Ibotta that you're really excited about in the local ecosystem these days? Yeah, I have a very strong personal passion around fertility. As you probably know, Adam, I've gone through my own fertility journey and it's been it was it was a long and hard journey before I had my daughter. And so I became very interested in companies that were looking at the fertility space or trying to make that space uh, better and more accessible and affordable and approachable, to be honest. And there's a company in town run by a woman named Abby Mercado. Um, it's called Rescripted, uh, and it is focused on um, trying to fix different parts of the fertility value chain um, and ensuring that patients in particular have access to the right tools, resources, and then networks to be able to manage through their fertility journey. And I just haven't gone through that experience myself, knowing how isolating and um, and confusing it can be. I'm just super excited about what she's doing. Had Abby on the podcast, so I um, encourage everyone to, to check that out as well. She's great. Yeah. So, Bijo, shifting gears a bit uh, to why we're here, um, we'd love to hear the biggest lesson that you've learned. You've worked at Ibotta Guild. You've done a bunch of interesting things before. What's the biggest lesson you've learned in your career so far? And then how did you learn it? The hard way. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's usually how we learn things that stick. <laughs> Um, I am a learn by doing person, no matter how many times someone might tell me, don't do that, you're going to hurt yourself, I will just instead do it. So the biggest lesson for me is learning to scale myself. And it might sound like, you know, like, okay, that makes sense. But actually, it's it's quite hard to do when you're early on in your career. 
you get a lot of satisfaction, internal kind of like gum, like desire to keep going, uh, motivation, I would say, and things from the contributions you as an individual make yourself, you know, pulling together a model, you know, writing the code to produce a new algorithm, creating the presentation and being the one to present it. And as you start to scale inside an organization or an organization scales, you actually have to relinquish that responsibility and you have to be okay with new people doing those things, being the ones to present the idea, being the ones to actually write the code that makes the thing work, or being the ones that are actually enabling something to happen. And my job over time has been to scale my knowledge, help connect the dots for individuals, but I'm not actually the one who's doing the work anymore. And as someone who was a very strong individual contributor, I think we somehow assign our value to how many things we got done or how many things we showcased. And so I think that lesson over time has been a hard one I've learned. And I'm still learning, to be very honest. I just did my performance review um, for this cycle at Guild. And every time you do the review, you're sitting there trying to be like, oh, I enabled someone versus I did the thing or I connected the dots versus I delivered the thing. And when your identity is wrapped up, I think as mine was and being such a strong individual contributor, making that mental shift to giving away the doer Legos and taking on the leader Legos has been really challenging. In Bijo, was it that you ended up getting burned out because you were working so many hours? Was it that things were falling through the cracks? What was the hard lesson that made you realize you had the shift from doer to enabler? Yeah, I think the first two that you said, which were things were falling through the cracks and or I was burning the midnight oil are true. I think the second thing is that because you can't do everything or be everywhere, um, the decision quality you start to make is poor or not as great as it could be because you don't have as much time or energy to be spending or focusing on one particular area. And so I think it ultimately ends up impacting business performance when leaders get pretty siloed in what they're uh, doing or thinking about versus being really the dot connector and kind of the um, insights driver across the company. Is, is there a specific decision or example you remember that you sort of said, oh, shit, I shouldn't have made that. I didn't have the time. I need to figure out a way to empower my team to do this. Or is it just a collection of those over time that you learned? It's a collection of those over time. I do have distinct memories of not getting something done with the quality that I thought it could or needed to get done and thinking to myself, the reason why you didn't get this thing done to the quality it could have been done is because you tried to do it yourself versus having uh, being surrounded by the right people with the right talent and the right caliber of individuals to take over and and own that thing. There are a few examples at Guild, whether it's a strategic decision on whether we go left or right on something where I'm just not in the weeds anymore. I don't have the facts. I need to rely on others. And that's totally fine because we'll get to a better decision and a better outcome if we do. Yep. And so Bijo, tactically, how did you make that shift? Like what were the things that you started doing that allowed you to step away and enable the team? Because I think that's what a lot of our listeners, they love hearing the, the story, but then kind of the question is like, well, how do I do it? Right. So how did you do it? I, the first thing I did was to start hiring people smarter than me. 
Um, as soon as you start hiring people who are smarter than yourself, they have an expectation that they will be able to own something, to deliver on something, and that they can carry the ball forward. And it's almost like a reverse forcing function to make yourself actually elevate and to spend more time connecting the dots. But for me, the, that was kind of the first thing that needed to happen, which is surrounding myself with the right talent and ensuring that that talent was strong, smart, and capable, and that they could carry the ball forward in the right way. Um, one, because I could rely on them, but two, they have an expectation. And so they push your ceiling even higher in a way that I think is uh, is quite gratifying. And it's probably the one thing of all the things I did that I would tell people to absolutely do. Can't scale yourself. You don't trust the people around you and you can't scale yourself if the people around you aren't pushing you to you know, spend time in the right areas and on the right things. BJ, the one thing I found from my experience too is that you absolutely have to hire people smarter than you, but you also as the leader have to make sure they have all the context that, that you have, right? Both of the current and historical, right, as well. Um, and I often found that when maybe some of those new people struggled, it was actually on me because I didn't provide the context to them that they needed. How have you learned to make sure that you're providing the context, both historical, current, cross-functional, whatever it is, to your team so they can they can run and make those decisions? Yeah, I spend a lot of time giving context, um, intentionally giving context to the teams. Um, and I have the good fortune of just, you know, kind of going through the review process and seeing feedback um, from individuals around one of the things that I do really well is connecting dots and setting context. And I think that is absolutely required, uh, Chris, and it's a really great call out. I think downloading what is you're seeing in your brain and giving that information to others inside the organization and helping them even see watchouts or where things, you know, around corners might happen is really, really, is really required in order to help folks actually be successful and to create the leverage that you need as a leader. And one of the things I've seen leaders not do well, just in my experience in the past, is when they aren't taking the time to set that context or they think the context is not important and they skip over that step and then they get to the end result and are like, well, this is not what I wanted or what I was expecting. And usually it's on the leader for not having taken a beat, for not having given that context. I do think it takes a lot of time and also you have to be uh, detail oriented, which I happen to be. <laughs> and so it works out in my favor. But I do think it's it's um, it is a really important thing. Thanks for highlighting that. You know, Bijan, one of the things I think is interesting when you talk about make sure to hire people smarter than yourselves, which could be its own own lesson. Right. And I think it's something that people talk about a lot. But in practice, what I've seen is, you know, everybody thinks that sounds good. But then when you actually have. Uh, especially as a young leader, a first-time leader, you, you bring in somebody who's maybe smarter than you or better than you at a certain area. People are really afraid for that person to outshine them potentially, uh, particularly as, a, as an earlier first-time leader. I've seen that. Love to get your take on that, how you kind of overcame that dynamic. I have seen that happen. I think it's happened to me <laughs> myself, which is the self-doubt starts to creep in. And I think two things for me have been really helpful one is actually seeing the power of doing this, which is when you hire someone smarter than you, they actually make your ideas better. They push you to be even better as a leader, but also as a contributor. And they create an environment that just allows your organization to rise to the next level. And I think 
again, as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm a learn by doing person. And so going through the process of actually hiring a few folks who were better at some domain or space than I was meant I could see for myself the value it created and how it made me even better at that domain. And I think that that was a really, uh, it was really helpful to go through that. I do sometimes still fall back into the trap of being like, wait, what am I doing to contribute to this situation? Or, or like, how can I make sure I'm being thoughtful or helpful to this individual? And so it's not that that narrative doesn't creep back into my mind, but I do think it's being really intentional about ensuring that my job now has shifted very much into connect the dots, give the context, allocate the resources. And I just have to remind myself again and again that that's the job at hand. Um, and when I say context, it's, you know, setting strategy, providing people with direction on what the North Star is and where we're going and why that matters. Um, and I think the more I can focus on doing that, the more I enable others to be able to do a really great job and to kick butt at their domain um, or their area of expertise. I totally agree. And I, I think some of it, though, particularly at a scaled organization, the size of Guild or, or other large organizations, it has to shift from really a, a CEO or C-level C leadership reward from just, hey, output to who's actually developing the talent, right? And I think that's something that oftentimes leaders don't really appreciate that, um, hey, somebody who's actually developing all those future leaders in the organization, that's super valuable as well. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I do think it's, I've had to at times like, you know, utilize self advocacy to showcase the value of creating what I call those multipliers. To me, what you just described is the multiplier effect. And it's really important to continue to showcase that, especially when an organization is shifting from everyone was just doing to now we need leaders and doers. Absolutely. You know, I always, I always use the analogy and I'm a college basketball fan of Coach K versus Calipari, right? And Coach K, he's got all his his former assistant coaches and disciples coaching other programs. Calipari also a successful coach individually, but I can't think of anybody that's off the family tree there, right? And it's who yeah. do you want to be as a leader um, is what, what we try to tell founders. That is actually a really great point. When I interview candidates even now, especially at the leadership level, one of the things I asked is like, how do you know you did your job or what are you most proud of um, in your career? And the ones that get me most excited are the people who said, I taught others how to do my job or to be successful in the job. And they went on to become a GC at X company or a CMO at Y company. And their legacy is kind of measured by the number of individuals they impacted to take on their role, but in other organizations. Yeah, I think that's awesome. Bijal, thanks. This is a fantastic lesson and look forward to seeing you continue to employ it as, as Guild continues to, to scale. How can our listeners follow what you're up to with Guild? I do my best to try and post updates on LinkedIn. Um, and so that's probably the best way to follow along. And then, you know, we do end up in the news every now and again. And so uh, watching for that as well, I think is, is a great way to learn what Guild is doing. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. 